everybody and welcome to the Maya Minds podcast. I'm your host George and here at Maya Minds we want to demystify mental health and make sharing mainstream within the exercising and sporting community. I really hope you enjoy this episode. Just before we get started, I want to remind you that here on the My Minds podcast, we do often talk about eating disorders, body dysmorphia, exercise addiction, suicide, and other potentially triggering topics. Usually in the description below, I will write down what we talk about specifically in this episode. That being said, I do hope you enjoy this, but please do be careful. Hi, Jamie. How are you? Hey, George. I'm very well, thank you. How are you? I'm I'm good. This is This is the first podcast i've done in what feels like an absolute eternity like it doesn't even feel real luckily i um have spoken to you previously and i feel like i always i already feel kind of like i just kind of feel like you're my mate so i just <laughs> i feel like this is a n- nice one for me to transition back into podcasting um but there's been quite a hiatus um since for the for the podcast in me kind of uh, reassessing where I see the podcast in line with my mind's work and stuff. And I think I got, I think I got into the pattern of, of like trying to churn them out rather than actually like, you know, putting my all into them. And it started to get to the point where I was, I wasn't dreading them, but I was, I was forcing them into my schedule. And I I think I'm now going to take a more, um, you know, sporadic approach where I'm, I'm, I can be my full self and have full energy and full, like, you know, focus into the conversation with that person and hopefully that'll be the start of this today so here we go quality not quantity exactly exactly and and not not to say i don't want anyone anyone else who i've been on my podcast to think that (laughs) i don't think they were quality um it was definitely wasn't from my guests end. it was more from my end i think i think i got um because i was a bit fried i maybe wasn't as articulate and um not as opinionated as i i could have been um so i'm i'm working on that um you're probably harsher you're probably your own worst critic i mean i'm mm. I'm the same with my work i do interviews with people and i come off the phone and i think was that any good you know i missed this i missed that but actually when you go back through it it's it's normally better than you remember Mm. yeah yeah i i I agree um like you say i think everyone's their own worst critic and i i think i yeah i've become aware of it i'm becoming more and more aware of it i, I always think i always think that uh, it's a classic imposter syndrome isn't it i always think that everything i do is just not that great and then all of a sudden <laughs> and then i get emails from people saying oh yeah i love what you do and or like you know people asking to come on the pod or people contact me for whatever reason and it's just mm. it always surprises me i always think like what w- which one did you listen to because i just don't think i'm that <laughs> like i'm just like are you, are you sure um well, yeah, I really appreciate that people people do enjoy it, and I yeah, I just try and be myself. So, um, I've definitely enjoyed the episodes that I've listened to. So, um, oh, thank keep you. up the good work. Thank you very much. Um, and I also wanted to say as well because I try and be as honest as I can on this podcast. And I spoke to you beforehand that I as I wanted to be honest with the fact that um, I am good right now, um, but I haven't been great. Uh, Christmas and New Year's was a bit of a shit time for me to be honest I, I i think it classically is for me with my eating disorder and my exercise and things and mm. um you know it's a it's a weird one but i it's been a bit crap for me and um i think i i thought i was further along the recovery and maybe i still am um but christmas and new year's was just so hard that it kind of knocked me back down to a, a depth that was really difficult um and quite a um balancer for me like as i realized like it reminded me of 
where I've been, um, which has been a good thing in, in some ways. Um, but yeah, I do, I do still have that lingering. I always think, I think I, I, I build myself up by doing scary things enough times that I, uh, that I lull myself into a, a sense of like, actually I can do anything. And then I kind of have this unstoppable confidence where I can speak to people and it doesn't bother me. <laughs> Um, but then something like that happens and it knocks it down and I have to build it back up. So I had, I've had, I had that um, anxiousness before coming onto this call because I'm thinking like, I don't quite have that like unstoppable confidence that I would have had mm. before that kind of dip. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. Mm. It, it, it's, it is what it is. Um, and I think, I think, it, yeah, in um, <clears throat> looking back at it now, I think, um, you know, even though it was really low, I can, I think I can look at it as well that, you know, I went so long without having that, that it seemed maybe worse than it would have been. Like it seemed worse because I had gone, because I've progressed so much, the lows now seem more impactful. And maybe that's a bonus. Like maybe that's a good thing, but you know, that they aren't happening that often. Yeah. I think maybe that also again speaks to your kind of self-critical mindset that you're, you're sort of hard on yourself for feeling those downs, you know, mm. I mean, actually you should probably try and give yourself an easier time, but mm. of course it's easy to say that it's much harder to do. I think Christmas is a hard time as well. You know, I definitely struggled with the, the lack of, um, you know, the, the structure you're in that kind of weird zone. And then also, you know, should I be working? Should I not be working? Should I be training? Should I not be training? You know, part of me wants to relax and, and just enjoy the time and enjoy the food. But then there's, there's still that part of me that, that is kind of saying, Oh, you should try and hit the gym. You know, have you earned that, you know, do you deserve to have that break? I find it very hard to, to relax, uh, not to actually the, the process of doing nothing. I find that kind of easy to do. I find it hard to enjoy the relaxing, if that makes sense. Mm. So there's always this thing in the back of my mind saying, you could be doing something to improve whether that's at work, you know, training, whatever. So yeah, it's a, I think it's a struggle for a lot of people. This time I think, of year. I think that thing in the back of your mind also has a, the access to the back of my mind as well, because <laughs> I have the same thing. Um, it's weird. Cause I, I can, I, I say, I struggle with, um, I say, I struggle with, with not doing anything, but actually deciding to not do anything is quite easy but then whilst I'm not doing it, I, I'll, it's almost like I'll go, I'll go, you know, half a day or even a full day without feeling anything. And then it'll get to the mm. end of the day and I'll get mm. this sudden drop in my, mm. in my heart. That's like, mm. you've done nothing today. Like you, mm. you've wasted the day. Yeah. And that's really difficult. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I had that even yesterday and, you know, it's a lazy Sunday morning and um, my wife, is very good at relaxing and she really enjoys nothing more than, you know, sitting in for a morning, you know, having a late breakfast, watching some TV, chilling out on the sofa. And I like those things too, in theory, but actually in practice come noon, I'm, I'm, I'm clawing at the walls. I feel like I should be doing something. I'm pacing up and down. I'm, I'm, I'm looking for jobs to do things to feel productive. Like I haven't just wasted the morning. And then, and then I start to kind of, you know um transmit that stress onto onto my family onto my kids and i'm like why why what's wrong with me <laughs> you know why why do i feel this and uh, she says that i'm like a dog i need to be sort of let out for some some exercise otherwise i'm just yeah a nightmare um but it's 
Yeah, I, I don't really know where it comes from, to be honest. This is part of the process of, of trying to kind of figure out, yeah, mm. why I have these this impulse to um, be doing things, improving. Yeah. You know, on the one hand, I think it's, you know, it's probably helped me to be successful to the extent I've been successful in in life, if I can say that. Um, but it's a double-edged sword, I think, very much so. Yeah, and that's, that's it's, a, it's a, an interesting, like, ethical question, isn't it, within mm. it? And it's something that I... I suppose question quite often, especially looking at exercise addiction and, and things like that, because we know that exercise is is healthy. Like, you know, there's so there's so much work showing that it has positive benefits on people's physical and mental health. Um, so who am I to to spread the message that people should tr- be careful into going mm. into it? Um, but there is obviously like it is a double-edged sword and um yeah, it's a difficult one because yeah, I know that if people exercise and maybe if for some people if they exercise more they'll actually have a more productive life or you know a healthier life or or whatever mm. um but i also know that those same people if they go that extra step they fall into this pit and i had i, I you know what this just reminded me and I, I didn't plan this but it's just popped into my head i watched a <laughs> um a ted talk the other day and it was a fantastic explanation of this and it was talking about they were talking about um like talking for mental health but i think it mm. applies quite well to this exercise mm. idea anyway but the the idea was um not talking is like a blindfold um mm. and the way he explained it was um we're all stood on the edge of a cliff um <laughs> like you know five five meters away from the cliff edge and they put a blindfold they've all got blindfolds on so we're all not talking and each of us will walk a certain amount forwards. And you know, let's say everyone goes up chronologically. So there's 10 people. So one works one meter, the other one two. So half of them are going to fall off. Um, so those people with the blindfolds walk forwards, half of them fall off and you become depressed or have exercise addiction or, or you know, commit suicide and all these all these things and half of them don't and then the half that don't fall off are talking about how amazing blindfolds are and how like you know we should all be wearing blindfolds everyone should be wearing blindfolds but what they didn't realize was actually they were only a meter away from falling off that cliff and i think it's the same with exercise people who don't get to exercise addiction might be that meter away from the cliff edge um, but they didn't. So they're thinking, oh, we should all be dishing out blindfolds. Like, they're great. They're amazing. Nothing bad's happened to me. Um, and I think that's quite a good like link. I didn't quite have that originally when I watched the, the TED Talk, but I think that's good. <laughs> yeah, I like that analogy. Mm. Mm. Anyway, um, we I haven't even like gone on to the first official question. Um, <laughs> we've just been chatting about random things, but... Um, as you mentioned, you are, I would, I, you said, you said, can you say I would agree you're a sex, successful man? Um, I nearly said sexy there. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Freudian you're, slip. You're, you're that as well. Um, well, I have had a haircut, especially for the podcast. So oh, it's probably well. that. <laughs> well, there you go. It's just got into my brain. Um, you're, you're a writer. You're a, a journo, if I may say so. Um, and the kind of, I suppose the area we're going to be talking about the most is your, your work with Men's Health magazine. Yeah. Um, well, I suppose my, my first question that I wanted to ask, because I think it's it might be quite an insightful one potentially, is how did you get into writing? Yeah, good question. Um, I just, English was always a subject I really enjoyed. Um, and I, but more than that, I just loved reading. Like from the very first you know, my mum jokes that when I was like three or four, you know, it was Christmas and I'd just be sat 
in the corner reading a book not wanting to open any of my toys always loved reading things um you know books anything I could get my hands on growing up through school I started to get more into magazines um you know at the time FHM was really big then men's health as well and uh then I didn't really know what I wanted to do with my life like a lot of people uh decided to do English literature at university and, and sort of stave off the decision for a few more years, got to the end of that, uh, went traveling, still didn't really know what to do. So again, stave off the decision for another year, hmm. um, came back. And then I was, I was working for, um, I just got a, a job working for a, uh, a travel company in my local town of Burton on Trent, which is one of these companies that sells, um, sells holidays, guided holidays to, to senior citizens. And I still see their adverts actually now, sometimes on TV or sometimes in newspapers. And it kind of reminds me of how far I've come. Um, and uh, yeah, I just, I didn't really know what I wanted to do, but I, I loved reading magazines, men's health particularly. So I just, I emailed uh, the editorial assistant at men's health at the time and just said, um, can I come and do some work experience with you? And I actually, I wrote quite a cheeky email, uh, cocky actually is probably a better word, um, saying, you know, I'm sure you get lots of requests for work experience, but I'm definitely better than all of those people. So you should uh, have me, have me in instead. And she called my bluff and said, yeah, can you come down next week? And I was like, oh, um, but I did. And, and yeah, men's health was the very first place I ever did work experience. Um, I did like two weeks there. Absolutely loved it. Mm. And then I sort of went around the industry, bouncing around, doing bits here, bits there. Uh, then I picked up, you know, after you've sort of proven yourself doing the kind of menial tasks like the photocopying and, and fetching uh, people's lunches and stuff and coffees, then, you know, you might get let to do a little bit of research for somebody. You know, they might say, oh, can you can you look up these stats for me or something like that? You know, at Men's Health, I remember getting asked to, um, you know, calculate the calories for like recipes and things. Okay. And then um, eventually they let you try out a little bit of writing. Uh, you know, it might just be a little box here or something like that. And then that just kind of built up. And I was couch surfing with some friends who lived in London. So I'd kind of come down for a few weeks, uh, do a bit of work experience, go away, maybe do a bit more paid work for a few more weeks. And basically just did that for like probably about six months in total. And then uh, eventually a job came up at GQ. And by that point, I'd amassed a portfolio. I'd been doing some, some freelance work for the various titles where I'd done work experience, um, some of which were paid, some of which was unpaid. Um, and, but by that point, I had a, a you know, a, <laughs> a physical folder. This is how uh, old this was now, you know, it's about 16 years ago. I had a physical folder of printouts with, you know, things that I'd written and had published. Mm. So I looked like somebody who, you know, could write, had, had been allowed to write for, for esteemed publications. Um, mm. So, yeah, then I got the job at GQ and I was there for, I spent about four and a half years there in total, I think. Um, but yeah, that was wow. the start of the, the career. Amazing. I, I love how it started with the fake it till you make it yeah. um, message. I love that. I, I love that the email was that that's what started. Cause I, I do think that's, that is how everyone who, who gets somewhere. I always think that there's a moment somewhere along that path where they did pretend they were, mm. they, they knew more than they, they, they actually mm. maybe thought they did. Um, you know, I, I love that that's, it's, it's kind of, kind of similar with me in the, in the fact that one of, I'm, I'm, I'm nowhere, I'm nowhere near going to attribute my level of success to, to yours. I think maybe one day, but um, <laughs> as for now, anyway, um, you know, the reason as I am someone who doesn't have any um, 
official qualifications in psychology, et cetera. And I'm now you know, working in the psychological fields in, in several on several different projects. Um, the way I, I started it was someone asked me if I knew, well, I started Maya Minds if just in general anyway, as like a place to share people's stories. And then someone asked me if I knew anyone who could um, teach about uh, exercise addiction. Um, and I just said, yeah, I, I can do it. Um, and I, I, you know, I, I knew, I knew like a little bit about it, but I didn't think I, I definitely didn't know enough to teach. And then they like kind of with you, they called my bluff and said, Oh, okay, great. Can you, in two weeks, we've got this thing. Can you, can you do something? And then I just spent, you know, I spent a, a week, just learn luckily like but maybe a maybe a bad um, idea but I was doing my master's at the time so I was supposed to be like revising for an exam but instead I just spent the, a week um, revising exercise addiction because my, my master's was on exercise nutrition um and I knew that that wasn't really where I wanted to go anymore but I thought I might as well get the the master's degree anyway so I wasn't too bothered about getting like a really good grade in my master's in this in this particular exam um so I spent the week learning about exercise addiction instead and then made the the course and and then it can that that's what led to all these other steps um so yeah (laughs) it's kind of a similar story in the sense that I I just said, yeah, I basically said, um, I probably do know, but none of them are better than me. And then, <laughs> and then I got it. So yeah, it's, it's funny how but I think the key, felt. the key thing there as well, though, is that you, you didn't know, but you, you went away and you learned. And I think that's mm. also quite a key skill in, in journalism. You know, people sometimes say to me, or I, some, I sometimes get accused of being an expert at, at things. And my, my retort to that is, you know, I, I'm not an expert, but I know somebody who is, um, and, you know, I think it's about knowing what you don't know, but also knowing how to find out, you know, knowing mm. where to look, who to ask and being able to learn. I think, yeah, it's a really important skill for me as a journalist. You know, I might get given an article about a topic that I know absolutely nothing about, but it's, it's like, okay, well, what's the process of, you know, how do I find people who do know what they're talking mm. about in this subject and, you know, what questions do I need to ask them? Um, and, you know, most of the time nowadays I do get, I, I get, um, people coming to me specifically for topics that they know that I know something about um, mm. or I have existing co- contacts within that field but I think it's such an important skill to be able to kind of learn yeah and mm. and, and research and, and know where to go to get reliable information um, so yeah it's not just about like blagging it completely oh yeah <laughs> yeah yeah I'm not, I'm not saying people should just <laughs> not that you're saying that either um, yeah. but yeah it's it's kind of like you know you know how to how to you know, find out about things and, and get information and learn. I think that's such, such an important skill. Yeah, I, th- I think the 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 thing I attribute it to is before before I got asked that question, I saw a, a quote from I can't remember who it was, um, but the the person said, and it might may have even been one of those ones that was wrongly attributed to someone. I don't know, but the person had said that um, when an opportunity comes your way, say yes and then figure out how to do it after. And yeah. I, it was like, it was perfect because I saw it. And then two days later, I got this email saying, oh, mm. you know, does anything. So I just said yes and then figured out how to do it. Um, and I, I suppose I, I attribute it to that. Um, but that's a really key mm. point that you made about um, the ability to to learn and to research. And I think I think that's a, an undersold um, important thing that you learn at university. I think it's an undersold mm. aspect of uni that people aren't, mm aren't necessarily taught um, or aren't necessarily um isn't isn't used to to bring people in which i think it should because 
the ability to for someone to say oh i need to learn about this thing and knowing how to learn about it where to go mm. where, how to check sources you know mm. that kind of stuff um i think that that's so valuable um and mm. i think it's the, it's the thing that the, my my master's degree doesn't directly apply to what i'm doing now but the skills that i learned and how to research and how to critically analyze mm. research and, and mm. things that that mm. has helped me to no end Mm. I always think of um, my history GCSE classes. Um, you know, we studied Nazi Germany and World War II, like like everybody else. And, you know, you learn about sources and you learn about how to assess sources. So, you know, is this a primary source or a secondary source? How reliable is this source? You know, is it did this source have any possible agenda? You know, is, is the Nazi Ministry for Propaganda possibly going to be putting a spin on this information? <laughs> is it is it going to be a hundred percent reliable? Mm. Um, and I you know I think about that all the time, especially you know nowadays with the amount of sort of misinformation on online and um, you know people just don't seem able to differentiate you know a, a random YouTube video from mm. you know. Um, uh, a government body or you know an official organization and and that that to me is kind of scary and and also i just i think you know how, how can you get through life if you're not able to sort of sort this information uh, mm. you know sort out the, the kind of wheat from the chaff informationally and it's not to say that i always get it right but i think it, i just think it's such a yeah it's a it's a real life skill you know and mm. um but yeah, that's just always the example I think of is, is um, yeah, his GCSE history. <laughs> I'll tell you, um, the only teacher to ever, ever give me detention at school was a substitute history teacher. Oh, really? Yeah, and I was so upset. So only time, <laughs> I, I was honestly like the golden child when I was a kid. Um, I never got in trouble ever. And then I got detention one time because um, she asked me, she asked me to photocopy some paper. And I said to her, um, I'm sorry, miss. I'm too stupid. I don't know where the photocopier is. And she just told me to get out. And the only thing I can, I'm still thinking about it to this day. It's been, <laughs> I don't even know. Um, the only thing I can think of is she thought she misheard me and thought I called her stupid. Right. Rather than saying I'm stupid. But that's why so I have bad memories of history. I, you know. But anyway, <laughs> I'm off topic. Apologize. Um, so I, I, I obviously, um, like you said, you, you worked in, men's health and you read so maybe maybe that's the answer to my question um well maybe it isn't actually because there's a there's a preempted part to that but what do you think sparked your interest in kind of muscle and, and men's health wow uh yeah i mean so much so much to unpack here um so i think um it really started when i was well it started to be expressed when I was probably about 16. Um, and in particular, I saw the film Fight Club uh, with Brad Pitt, which is a very common entry point for a lot of people into the, the world of muscle. And uh, yeah, I just remember that bit where he kind of stands up from the floor and, you know, you can see his, his inguinal crease, as I now uh, know it's called. And um, just thinking like, wow, um, you know, I want to look like that. Um, and at the time... Yeah, I was at school. I was at a boarding school called Repton, uh, which if you've ever read the book Boy by Roald Dahl, it's the same school from, from that. Um, mm. And that was quite a, a, a weird environment in lots of ways. Um, but one of the ways that, that it kind of affected me was that I was um, very much a, a, a geek and academic. I, I'd gotten there on a, a scholarship and a government-assisted place uh, for, for kind of children who were 
academically gifted if you pass certain exams the government would, would basically pay for you to go to these schools so um so i went there which is not somewhere that anyone from my family would have gone otherwise mm. um and uh, i guess the best way i can describe it is a bit like Hogwarts but with more institutional bullying um and, <laughs> but um it was a very um it, you know it, it set me up for a life in, in lots of ways and in lots of positive ways but I think that in some ways it, it's also affected me negatively and um but I, you know, on a very basic level like if you weren't in the sports teams you weren't like one of the cool guys uh and in particular you wouldn't get any attention from the girls at school although or that was how it seemed to me at the time um there also just were fewer girls than guys i think the ratio was about 70 to 30 so like your chances weren't good anyway so i remember just feeling like i needed to if i was going to get any attention from girls i needed to do something to my body so i bought a set of press-up handles from i think probably argos or somewhere like that and uh one of these um kind of bookazines uh from wh smith that, that was like a magazine but it had like workout plans within it and you, it had the spaces where you could write your your sets and reps and things and okay. uh started following that and um yeah that was when the habit kind of really kicked in okay um and i suppose i suppose yeah i suppose it's, it's normal that people um get it from some kind of source of of media do you think do you think then you said that there was bullying in school was there ever did you ever have bullying and stuff directed towards your because from my personal experience I think a big part for me was I had similar to you where I saw these ideals but then I, also I had to internalize that my body wasn't good enough and I think mm. part of that I, I wouldn't I don't think I was maybe I was bullied in, in some sense um, and maybe that's me belittling it um, in my own head but uh, I was definitely picked on for, for mm. the way that my body looked at times and um, mm. is that something you experienced at all i didn't i wasn't um criticized for the way my body looked but again this is something i've only really sort of started to um connect the dots with recently but um i remember so i don't know boarding school is not an experience everybody has obviously but um you you're divided into houses um so so i was within a certain boarding house so yep. and within that house um you know, I, I was in the first year, so I would have been like 13, um, but you had uh, boys, you know, up to the age of 18. And because you're in a the, the setup of the boarding house, you have a lot more kind of, um, I guess, cross-pollination across the age groups. So like we were divided into studies and in a study, you'd have like one person from the first year, which would be me. Then you'd have like a couple of boys from the years in between. And then you'd have one boy from the, the top year who was 18, who'd be the study holder. Mm. So you'd have this sort of like little... Um, you know uh environment where you you'd sort of mix with these older boys and um so i guess from that point of view like you had i had to sort of i had contact with these guys and like they you know i was a boy still but they were very much men mm. and you know they'd have like uh, i remember being amazed you know they had coffee like they'd make coffee every <laughs> evening before they went up to do prep which is the boarding school equivalent of homework because you don't have homework because you don't go home so okay. in the evening you do prep so they'd make coffee before prep um so i see things like that and be like wow i want to drink coffee and they'd have magazines like fhm and i'd be like wow i want to read fhm too and yeah. you know they'd have aftershaves and things um but also like they were just physically bigger as well so i remember mm. just being like amazed by like their physiques and you know we had we'd have changing rooms communal changing rooms and communal showers so you'd see these, these guys who were basically they were like men you know and again mm. i was like a 13 year old boy but what, the thing that really um 
bringing it back to the to kind of bullying topic was um I remember like one of my very first days at, at Repton I was walking up the stairs in the boarding house and I just I brushed past this guy who was um you know in the top year one of the cool guys and uh he just he turned and looked and he didn't eat, like his instinctive reaction was he just like punched my arm as hard as possible a dead arm you know it's not yeah. you know in the in the grand scheme of bullying like it's a fairly minor thing but I just remember being so shocked by just the sort of unexpectedness of it like no you know you, you just don't expect to just get mm. like randomly punched when you're walking yeah. along at school um and I just remember being like wow and kind of being like physically hurt but also just a bit more like kind of emotionally hurt you know and again mm. I'm talking about it what like uh, 20 years later so it obviously had an impact on me beyond mm. the actual physical punch um and in terms of like the, the sort of the more serious bullying like I got off very very lightly compared to a lot of guys you know and a lot of guys in my years had a really rough time um so from that point of view you know I, I got off quite lightly but it was more that there's a there's a threat of violence mm. like there's a possibility of violence you're aware that if you say the wrong thing to the wrong person at the wrong time you're going to get they used to be you just call it beatings you know you, you mm. get beatings and, and sometimes you know people would you know the older boys would just sort of mention it as a threat you know oh you know if, if you don't do that you're going to get beatings like we, we had certain tasks that we were expected to do within the boarding house like cleaning things and keeping things tidy but then also like the older boys there was an expectation that they could um ask you to do stuff for them like go and get me this go and get me that you know um like one, one time i got sent to the local spa shop to buy some cigarettes for one of the guys in the upper six which is definitely not allowed and yeah. if i got caught i would have got in quite big trouble but i felt like i couldn't refuse him because he was older and mm. uh, you know he had a bit of a beard and like facial hair and um you know i, I felt like i had to do it to kind of maintain face so um mm. you know there was i didn't get a lot of physical violence directed at me there's probably like five or six incidents over the, the course of the five years um but there's always the possibility of it and i've mm. realized since that I'm, I'm quite attuned to violence breaking out you know like if i see like people getting you know people having argument on a train or something my brain is immediately leaping three steps ahead to like there's going to be a fight and i'm going to have to step in and, and mm. sort it out or you know um i think i'm quite um yeah sensitized to, to the possibility of violence now because of that and i think mm. so thinking about it in terms of the, the physical body i think like that probably made me you know think i need to make myself stronger i need to be bigger mm. and stronger because again that you have just these these older boys they're just so much bigger than you you know mm. and, and you know if, if they're going to be violent towards you you really can't do anything about it in terms of fighting back mm. and obviously you know, going to tell the teachers wasn't really an option either. There was a kind of a, you know, a culture of, of silence in that regard. You know, you had to sort of just take it. So, um, yeah, I think actually trying to get physically bigger was a way of, you know, trying to ward off, ward off threat. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think, you know, in regards to the physical violence versus the threat, I think sometimes the threat can even be worse because at least mm. I think the physical ends when it's ended and, and the, the threat kind of can linger, can't it? And mm. it's making me think, because I've never really thought about this, but um, I, I've, I've mentioned on the podcast before, I don't know if I've, I've mentioned to you, but my, my dad was like an alcoholic when I was, when I was younger and um, there wasn't any kind of physical violence but there was quite a lot of like arguments and you know him coming back like the police bringing him home in the middle of the night and like you know stuff wow. going on at home 
Um, and I, I do think, you know, that I was, I was always conscious of that potentially happening. So, you know, even if it, even with, through periods where it wasn't happening as often, I do think it affected me. Um, yeah. Feeling like I had to, you know, there, there was times where my mum would say, you know, go into your little sister's room and, you know, just like take care of her, like shut the door and, and like take care of her. And I guess I felt like I, it was my responsibility to look after her and I could see how that would potentially play into this idea that I have to be protective. And I, um, yeah. Um, but yeah, so that, that I, that I, what I'm saying is I resonate with the idea of the threats being difficult. Like, you know, the, the actual events I, from, from my, from my, my personal experience with, with my dad or whatever, I think the events are less, uh, less of an issue for me anyway, than the actual fear around, are they going to happen again? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and again, this is only something that I've really started to join the dot quite recently. You know, if you'd asked me a couple of years ago, I would have just said, yeah, it was, you know, it was Brad Pitt in Fight Club. But, um, you know, my dad was, you know, he, he wasn't an alcoholic or anything, but he certainly had a, you know, a hair trigger temper. And he was, again, it was a different time back then. But, um, you know, he was somebody who certainly would, would discipline you physically if you stepped out of line. And, and thankfully, I was smart enough to learn not to step out of line. <laughs> hmm. um, my, my next younger brother, unfortunately, didn't, didn't learn that lesson quite so easily. But, um, hmm. you know, it, I guess, again, again, that sort of primed me early on for that sort of physical threat and that, and that feeling of powerlessness. You know, it's hmm. like, you know, you can't do anything to fight back. Um, hmm. So, you know, I, I don't, I wouldn't want to sit here and say that, you know, I've, I've been training to, to fight my dad all this time or something, but, you know, I think that probably, yeah, programs you a little bit, but then also, you know, my dad, he wasn't a physically big guy, but he was quite a masculine guy. Like he, he had a lot of tattoos, rode motorbikes. <laughs> He's very, very different to me um, mm. to the point that one of my party tricks is to pull out pictures of my dad and show them to people. Because <laughs> if you've known me for like more than five seconds, you would not believe that my dad is my dad. Mm. Um, and even when I was at school again, that was quite something that um, I think it probably actually saved me a lot of beatings in retrospect, because, you know, occasionally my dad would come to pick me up and, you know, he'd walk into the school in like, uh, you know, camouflage trousers and, and boots and a, a Harley Davidson t-shirt hmm. you know you could see his tattoos and his arms and you know I was there with all these middle class upper middle class boys whose, whose dads were you know um, running businesses and you know playing golf and stuff like that and um, you know they'd look at my dad and be like bloody hell like who's <laughs> that um, so yeah it probably got me some extra extra kind of um, cool points and stuff but um, you know my dad was also like he loved like Arnold Schwarzenegger films and stuff like that. And, you know, he'd let me stay up to watch Conan the Barbarian mm. and stuff like that. So again, you know, and actually Conan the Barbarian is one of my favorite uh, all time training montages. I don't know if you remember that film, but. Um, I, you know what? I, I I was so into like the, the, I've been so into like bodybuilding and stuff like that, but I've not really watched many of Arnie's films. I need to, I should watch them really. The original Conan the Barbarian is great. It's very violent it's absolutely not suitable for a young boy to be watching um uh, but one of the things i love is low-key one of my favorite training montages because basically right at the start um like these uh, barbarians come in and kill kill everybody in, in conan's village and he's just a young boy he's like i don't know eight years old or ten years old or something and mm. they they take him off to the desert to this thing called the wheel of pain which is just this, this massive wheel with all these sort of like logs attached to it and they chain all these all these kids up that they've they've um, kidnapped and make them push this wheel around mm. for what purpose i don't actually know 
Um, but the, then there's like these sort of time lapse and basically they keep coming back and all the kids keep dying like one by one because of the, the physical sort of demand until mm. the end there's only one left and, it's and he's Arnold Schwarzenegger <laughs> with his Mr. Olympia physique and it's again now I can look back at that and think mm, that's not 100% realistic but you know watching it as a sort of you know 10 year old 12 year old whatever I was just like wow like chain me up to a wheel in the desert ASAP you know I want yeah. to do that um but isn't that isn't that a perfect picture of I'm, I'm reading in more and more because I I'm I think I don't know if I told you but I've, I've been accepted to do my PhD and I'm looking into um men's experiences with muscularity oriented stuff so I'm reading more into um the kind of I suppose the philosophical um ideas and and assumptions around men's health and there's there's kind of this idea of the the hero rhetoric or this the idea that we're we're told to be the hero to be um expendable and to you know to 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 be the one that pushes even through exhaustion and even through the chance of death um and that's what it means to be a man isn't that a perfect example that all these other and boys couldn't hack it and therefore they're less than the hero that is Arnold Schwarzenegger who could deal with the adversity and and come out bigger and stronger and that's a bit you know I, I, even as I say it's kind of you know it, it almost feels like emotional because it's it's so ingrained in me that that's what makes a man um and and that's what we're taught that like, you know if you're if you're not capable of enduring as much as another guy then you're less than that person you're not the main the main star in the movie <laughs> yeah i think so um yeah even just telling you that sort of anecdote now i think like i'm i'm still i'm still attached to my wheel of pain i'm still out here in the desert you're pushing it around trying to get mm. bigger and stronger um but yeah like my dad was you know he wasn't really into um gym stuff he'd have he'd have like periods where he'd like buy a bench for the garage and be doing some bench pressing out in the garage or he'd um you know buy a boxing uh a punch bag you know and do that but he wasn't really like a big guy kind of into like training but he was like a guy again who you know he would always like if there was a fight to be had my dad would have it you know what I mean and and he'd kind of he'd sort of settle arguments that way and and you know it it's not always like, I remember one time <laughs> I was like probably about seven or eight and I'd been playing with some friends and there were some older boys there who I guess must have been like teenagers. And, and one of them said something horrible to me. I can't remember what exactly. He maybe swore at me or something. And I went home and told my dad. And my dad was working on the, ga- in the, on the driveway. Uh, he was a car mechanic. So again, very physical, kind of classically manly sort of job, manual job. And uh, as I was just telling him that these boys had been mean to me, they happened to be walking past the end of the street. And... Uh, so my dad, it was a hot day, so he had his shirt off, all his tattoos out. He's quite sweaty. He just stormed over to these kids, grabbed the one who'd been who'd been mean to me by the throat, and just was like <laughs> giving it to him in his face. And his kid must have absolutely shat his pants. Oh my god! Um, and you know, obviously that's not how you should behave. Really, that's not how you should resolve situations in life. But there was also part of me that just really loved that my dad mm. could do that in that moment. And again. Um, you know, it's not how you should settle things. But when I first when I first went to um, Repton, I went to the, the preparatory school first called Formark, and there was a teacher there who really didn't like me for some reason. I think she just genuinely didn't believe that I um, 
didn't know how to do the stuff that they were doing. They, they were doing like algebra and things. I, I'd mm. literally never seen it before. I just didn't, mm. I had no idea what X and Y meant. <laughs> um, I'd come from a normal, um, you know, state primary school and I'd ne- literally never seen it before. For some reason, she didn't like me. And again, I told my dad that, um, that I was having some problems with this teacher and he stormed into the school, stormed into the school staff room and, and basically had it out with this female teacher. Mm. <laughs> and um, again, like it wasn't, you know, you shouldn't behave like that in life, but mm. there's also part of me. I, I kind of think about it in the sense of, um, have you ever seen the Sopranos? Yeah. 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 I think the Sopranos does a very good job of kind of showing you like that sort of toxic masculinity, it, mm. but showing you, showing you the negative side of it, but also showing you that there's, there's also that element of like attraction where I, where I think like as a man, there's part of you that feels like you should resolve situations in that kind of manly way. You know, mm. like if someone says something, you know, and disrespects you or your family or whatever, like you should just like take them out into the car park and beat the shit out of them. But there's also part of me that knows that's absolutely not how to get, get on in life. Um, yeah. And it's that so, that's so like ingrained into me and it's something I'd struggle with. I, you might, I, I think m- most of, if not all my issues come down to that idea of masculinity. I've been, I, it was, it's been internalized into me that like X is what a man is and I am Y and they yeah. happen to be very part, far apart. And I almost feel shame in the fact that, um, you know, I'll, I'll, you know, if I'm feeling down or, or like not confident, I'll, I'll, um, I'll get like images in my head of, of, you know, something happening like, um, like to a family member or to my girlfriend or something and, and, and me not having the, you know, the bravery to go and like beat the person up in front of them. And, mm. and, and that I feel so much shame for not being violent and that mm. it, it doesn't really make any sense if I think of it objectively, like, it, you know, why, why should I have to, you know, beat someone up in order to feel okay with who I am? And I know for a fact that my family or my girlfriend and anyone else wouldn't be like, oh yeah, I'm glad, so glad you beat them up. But yeah. <laughs> for some reason it's, it's like, yeah, it's taught into me. That's what I'm supposed to do. Like you say, it's what we're mm. supposed to do, which, yeah, it's even, even when I know that it's not true, it's still hard to, to separate it. Yeah, absolutely. I have a very, very hard relate to that. You know, I, I know that's not going to help. It's going to make things much worse, but there's mm. still, part of me and you know i've seen it with my dad you know he's had many times in his in his life and his career when he that temper has got him into trouble you know and especially at work um he's recently been diagnosed with uh, ptsd from his time in the army which um, Mm. explains a lot um but yeah you know i know that's not how to get ahead in life and you know there's been times in you know when i was at school or even in my professional life where you know i've had issues with people um where I felt like they've not treated me properly or been unfair to me. And, um, you know, I've swallowed it and, you know, tried to be the bigger man and, and gotten on with my life. But, mm. you know, I'd be lying if I said that there wasn't a kind of a part of my brain that, that kind of thinks back to those moments and thinks, you know, what you should have done is, you know, reached across the desk mm. and <laughs> smashed him in the face or, um, you know, uh, yeah, or the same at school. But um, yeah, again, that's, it's not, really how you get on in life it's mm. how you get on in in films but yeah not in and that, actual, I, I, real life. yeah and that that's the problem is i think we equate films to to real life don't we and mm. it's you know it's, i think i think it's very widely spoken about how you know in the media women are portrayed in a in a you know 
um, unachievable manner or in, in, you know, as weak and as you know, whatever. But I think I think the more should be spoken about and more should be you know, um, highlighted that men are portrayed in the opposite, that we're expected to be overtly, you know, if we're not the CEO and not the, the person willing to die for their you know, their, their friend or the per, this um, person they just met and instantly fallen in love with, then we're weak and spineless. And, you know, if you don't, if someone disses you and you don't punch them in the face and walk away with badass music and sunglasses, then you're, you're like, you're not, you're not the guy, like you're not, you're just, you're just the extra in the film, the one that's, who doesn't do that. Yeah. You're the, you're the guy getting sand kicked in his face, but mm. really, yeah. yeah. To yeah. quote the classic kind of Charles Atlas no, yeah. advert. Yeah. It's yeah, it's a it's a hard one. Um I guess I kind of want to move us on somewhat because we spoke a, a lot about your kind of experiences and your stuff. And I, I want to talk about your work as well. And I, I'm conscious that we're already kind of getting close to the hour mark. So I feel like we're definitely <laughs> going to go over that. Um, yeah. Sorry. I went, I went deep there. It's no, free no. therapy for me. So, you know, I want to make the most of it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, please don't apologize. Like I, I, uh, you know, they're, they're what make the podcast those, those moments where we delve into stuff. Um, but I just, I feel like the viewers would, uh, the viewers, the listeners would would be angry with me if I didn't speak a bit more about what you do. Um, so obviously with with men's health, um, you've written several articles, and I know you mentioned to me that you've you've interviewed quite a few like influential people about different fitnessy things. Can you name drop some people? Wow, uh, where to start? <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, so I, yeah, I've had the privilege of of interviewing a lot of uh, famous stacked men so uh mark Wahlberg, jason statham ryan reynolds henry cavill um anthony joshua trying to think of daniel craig uh he was at gq um yeah so so many you know then lots more athletes uh and then obviously as well like all the amazing kind of experts who you know the names they're not names that you would drop at parties necessarily but you know they're they're like incredibly knowledgeable and you know it's a Mm. real um you know, uh, kind of privilege of my job, but kind of a life hack cheat code that I can almost anybody in the world you can think of, I, I could contact them as a, as a journalist and legitimately mm. say, I'd like to talk to you. And there's a decent chance that they'll say yes, mm-hmm. uh, which is kind of mind blowing. Um, so, you know, this week I'm hopefully going to speak to uh, Gareth Thomas, the, the rugby player. Um, I'm hopefully also going to speak to Bukayo Saka, uh, the mm. football player. Wow. Um, which is amazing for me because I'm an Arsenal fan. Um, so, you know, just, and, and also, you know, I, I could open up an email tomorrow from somebody that could, they could have some other amazing kind of opportunities. So yeah, it's, it's pretty exciting from that point of view. Um, and I do feel, feel very privileged. You know, I met Arnold Schwarzenegger, probably wow. the, the biggest um, fanboy moment for me, a watch fair of all places in Switzerland, you know, so it wasn't like the dream Arnie interview or anything, but um, he was, promoting a uh, a watch brand that he was making with some people which didn't wasn't actually that great to be honest uh, we, <laughs> we, we took the meeting for the for the opportunity to meet Arnold Schwarzenegger yeah. which is of course was why they were working with Arnold Schwarzenegger because yeah. they know that that he opens doors and yeah like that when we, we got a selfie with him obviously I stood sideways and kind of you know flexed your arm flexed my yeah. arm a little bit that's <laughs> what you do when you stand yeah. next to Arnie um, yeah so yeah, no, I've been pretty lucky. And a lot of the people now actually I've interviewed like more than once as well. So especially like the men's health kind of cover stars, because there's a sort of limited number of stacked 
male actors so mm. you know like ryan reynolds i think i've interviewed him three times henry cavill i'm up to three times now jason statham twice um yeah so i wouldn't quite say they were on speed dial but um you know. <laughs> no, it's, yeah it's, it's, it's amazing and I, I suppose do you have like a, a standout one that you you think you get on with the most or kind of you uh yeah i mean I'm wondering if I sort of say this on the podcast. I suppose it's not really that secret, but um, I got a really, I love Jason Statham. I was a massive Jason Statham fan. And um, like, even when I was traveling with my, my mate after uni, like we, we had a travel blog and, and our like names on the, on the, on the travel blog we like use like quotes with names from jason statham films and things like that um you know we were like massive jason statham fans so then to find myself interviewing jason statham like years later was was just amazing in and of itself like a real bucket list mm. moment but then like he's he's because he's got an athletic background you know he used to be a diver and um yeah he was like really into training like some some actors you could talk to and you know you could tell it's just something they have to do for a role and you mm. know it's quite boring like I mean, training is inherently quite quite boring dieting mm. is inherently quite boring really um but he just was really into it and um yeah just being able to kind of like geek out with him was amazing <laughs> yeah um, yeah you say so you know those actors that are um you know somewhat forced to or you know expected mm. to without wanting to exercise and, and diet um do you do you do you get a sense that they're, they're doing it because you said kind of you said it there but do you get a sense that they they don't want to have to do that but they're they feel obligated to yeah i mean it's hard to know always because you know a lot of you know most of them will put a kind of good spin on it anyway you know a few of them would probably tell you that they hated it although it's happening a little bit more now like robert patterson did an interview with gq last year where he was he was supposed to be training for the batman but he was like yeah i'm not really doing anything and he was like you know if you're if you're training all the time you're part of the, i think you're part of the problem um but you know a lot of the actors who, who do it a lot and they kind of have become known for their bodies you know it, it becomes a kind of way of life for them mm. and i think even for for mere mortals like us as well you know it's you when once it becomes enough of a part of your life you almost forget whether you like it or not you know mm. you just something you do you don't really question it mm. um and i have i had this recently actually where i was i joined a new gym um and i, I had i've been training um just uh you know over the course of lockdowns and covid i would just been training at home with like kettlebell and resistance bands and stuff but i was like you know i, I think i want to join a gym and then i was like do i do I actually want to join a gym though? Do I like, mm. do I actually want to, or do I just feel like I should? Mm. You know? And I, I had the pleasure of interviewing um, a, an expert called Dr. Roberto Olivardia, who's one of the co-authors yeah. of uh, the Adonis complex, which yeah. is an amazing book, which really opened my eyes to a lot of things. Um, and he had a phrase that he said about his patients, his muscle dysmorphia patients, which really resonated with, resonated with me was that um, he said most, a lot, a lot of them don't even really like exercising, but they really don't like not exercising. And that, mm. that kind of really hit me. Like I, you know, I'm obviously not anywhere near that extreme, but I, that sentiment of like, you know, do I actually like the process of training? You know, sometimes I do, sometimes I feel great afterwards, but a lot of times I just feel like it's something that I have to do. And if I don't mm. do it, I will really not feel good. You know? Yeah. Um, that kind of I speaks get, to that. There's, there's a the classic kind of, explanation or classic way that exercise addiction can be explained or you see seems to happen often is when people go from a positive um 
feedback loop to a negative feedback loop, which is, um, you know, I exercise more, um, my anxiety goes, I get more friends, my body looks better. So I want to exercise more. So I start exercising more. It goes around like that, but then some, somewhere along the, the lines that can go from, that can go, it can change to, I exercise more. I think my body looks better. I think my anxiety is going down, etc. cetera. Um, if I don't keep going, they're going to stop. That's going to stop or, or my anxiety is going to come back. My body's going to get worse from my, my perspective. Mm-hmm. And so I have to keep going now. And then it goes up more. And, and that, mm-hmm. that kind of speaks to that from what you were saying. Yeah. Yeah. So I, Again, another expert I interviewed is a, a guy at the University of Melbourne called um, Dr. Scott Griffiths, who has a really good TED talk. He is, he is literally dysmorphia. my hero, can He's, I just say. Oh, if, wow. If you can get me in touch with Scott, please. He is, he, when I first started this podcast, Scott Griffiths, Scott Griffiths, Stuart Murray, Jason Nagata, they were like the, I, I don't know if I'd Rock be able stars. to speak. I don't know if I'd be able to speak to him, um, <laughs> but. I'm very jealous that you spoke to uh, Scott Griffiths, but yeah, sorry. Oh, I'll, 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 I'll hook you up on email with him after oh, this. Please yeah. Do. Yeah. Please um, no problem. Um, yeah. He, he, he talked about like that cognitive trap. Yeah. Of, you know, you get a little bit of positive feedback, but then it becomes like, now I don't want to lose this thing. You know, now I've, I've, I've got this, like, I don't, I can't afford to lose it. Um, and I remember when I went to uni, um, you know, I, I hadn't been a really sporty guy at school. I hadn't had a lot of attention from, girls when I got to uni and um I we had a college I went to Durham uni and there was a college system there so you had like um the university sports teams which were very high level I wasn't going to get anywhere near the university football team but you had college sports uh, sports teams as well so I, I went for the, on for the college football trials in the first week and uh ended up getting on the the A team for the college the college had like I think four teams at the time like A B C and D team what so college were you again? I think St. Aidan's Aiden's College. St. Aidan's. I was college. I was Van Milder. Oh, amazing. Okay. Wow. I didn't even yeah. know you went to Durham. Yeah. Yeah. Um, oh wow. So we we yeah, like literally like yeah, across the road. The road. Yeah, across <laughs> the road. I went back there the other day with one of my um one of my old mates. Um like last week we had a little round. Um but yeah, so like you know, the new friends that I just made, it was still like freshers week, I think. You know, these, these new friends that I'd made they were like what you know they some of them had come to the trials as well and and you know not gotten picked and stuff and they were like oh wow you're this like sporty guy you know and then I was like am, am I really am I and then um I remember like where, where our accommodation was in the college like we had the showers um they were across the hall there was like like sort of shower blocks and um I remember like walking out in my towel to go and get in you know the towel around me to go and get a shower and like a girl who I didn't know a couple of doors down, who was very confident, uh, like wolf whistling at me and like saying I had nice legs or something like that. And I was like, I say something like that. Like, I know exactly what she said. It was like imprinted in my mind. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's obviously great. Um, you know, and it made me feel really good. Um, and, you know, I, 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 my roommate at the time, he was like amazed by how much exercise I was doing, uh, you know, and that became like a thing that people knew me for and, you know, and it was all positive, but I think mm. again, it kind of it's this idea of like you can kind of fall into this trap where you feel like you need to perpetuate it, and yeah. you know, and even now, all this time later, it's it's why is it important for me to be to be known as somebody who works for men's health? You know, is why does that is that part of an identity that I need to kind of have? You know, that mm. I, that I really value. You know, I think even more than like my other colleagues who I worked with at the magazine who who have since left, like. I'm probably the one who still kind of does the most work 
with mm. them and i think you know it's partly because i'm interested in this stuff but i think there's part of me that like i want to have that identity of being that men's health guy you know mm. yeah and it's it's a weird one because you know i was gonna i was gonna kind of check you but you've almost checked yourself there where you know you <laughs> said I that myself you said <laughs> um you said you know that that girl complimenting your legs is great and i, I was thinking well you know mate you i think it's almost like a positive reinforcement because you know i've said this to, to people before um you know I, i'd let's say i start going to the gym um and my mom has said to me before like oh you can tell you go in the gym again look at look at your arms your arms look bigger don't they and <laughs> i have to say to her like mom it, it feels great when you say that but what you're telling me is if I don't keep my arms like this, you're going to stop complimenting me because, because it's not good enough anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, I think you know, as much as compliments are great, I think they can, they can be detrimental for that, for that reason. And, and speaking to your kind of idea of um, the identity of being the, the men's health guy um, again, it's, it's a difficult one because I think, I think to some degree, you know, we have to have um, things in place that we assess ourselves towards in order to to um, ontologically position ourselves as a, a you know a feel to feel good about yourself. You know, to categorize yourself as as someone who you can um, be um, proud of, or like you can you you can feel proud and feel good about yourself. I think you we have to have some kind of scale in order for us to 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 see where we are on there but it's when that that gets too refined or becomes too all-encompassing and it's like how much of how much of things or what is allowed in that thing to weigh yourself up against and what isn't and it's really hard like it's really fucking hard and i'm trying you know i'm trying to like i said uh, with, with my phd it's something i think i'm gonna have to try and address is where is that line of exercise playing into the you know is it okay to feel good about the fact that you exercise and you're an exerciser? Because maybe it is, or maybe there is a, a level where you can feel proud of that. Um, but and but then when exactly is that line? And same same with you know, um, same with your your um, working with men's health. You know, and, and maybe it's good to have that thing, but maybe maybe there's a line where if that means that you wouldn't take another. Th- thing that actually you're really excited about because you're scared of losing that title is that then a problem uh, and it's like you know it, it's it's complicated isn't it it's really complicated and, and yeah i don't think there's an easy answer and it's something that i'm still kind of trying to unpick you know is, is this thing serving you or not like what is my relationship with this what why am i really doing this um yeah i think it's it, and and you know the answer can change from day to day but i think it's it's you just have to kind of be honest with yourself, I think, don't you, as, as far mm. as possible, but that's easier. And listen to what you're, to what you're kind of really thinking. Cause I think it's easy, it's easy to kind of shut out feedback, whether it's, you know, you know, from training in the gym or, or whether it's, you know, stress with work or, or whatever. Um, it's, it's easy to kind of shut out the feedback and just kind of push mm. through. But I think, you know, the feedback pain is, you know, whether physical or mental is, is usually, telling you you know it's, it's a warning signal that something's not right that you need to change mm. things and um but you know so a lot of us some of us are very good at pushing through that pain yeah. ignoring it well mm. mm. well buzzkill <laughs> no 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 it's, i'm just i'm just thinking and <clears throat> yeah it's a difficult one um 
because I don't have an answer, I'm going to move on. I will leave that to Lord. <laughs> um, I, I wanted to, you're speaking about honesty. I wanted to be, I want to be honest with you. Um, before I met you, um, I had pretty much written off Men's Health magazine as <laughs> a, a, a source of muscle orientated issues. And um, after meeting you and, and hearing about your work and reading the articles you're putting out, I am, I'm, you know, I'm surprised and really happy that I'm surprised that actually there are articles talking about body image in men and talking about steroids and talking about these things that are actually really positive. And I guess I want to, I want to ask you, um, what made you decide to get into this? Um, and can you tell us a little bit more about the articles that you have written? Yeah. So, I mean, weirdly, the, the kind of initial article came from men's health it wasn't an idea that i gave to them you know sometimes as a freelance contributor you know sometimes i pitch things to them sometimes quite often they'll they'll come to me and say hey you know we want we want someone to write an article about this and we thought you might be able to do it um so uh, the feature editor there uh, approached me to write an article about body image um so they were doing a um, survey of readers what they thought about their bodies how they felt uh, and then as part of that they wanted to do um case studies of like six different guys with different body shapes um, and, and just kind of getting their sort of uh, perspective of their their history with their bodies their relationship with their bodies you know why they train the way they train um, so I helped put that together and um, you know find the guys and so we had like um, we had a guy who was a PT who was also a physique competitor we had a guy who was a, an ex-junior cyclist uh, he was a junior cyclist for Wales um, we had a guy who was a strong man it was a guy actually I met at a gym up here in, in Stockton. Um, so we had like a, a, a mix of different. Oh, we had a guy who was a plus size male model, uh, a guy called Ben Witt, um, who was one of the first, maybe the first in the UK, I think. Um, so all different guys. So I was interviewing these guys, and it was during the um, like early stages of the pandemic. So it was just a weird time. I was like in, living in the spare bedroom at my mother-in-law's place with my family. We'd moved out of London. Um, and uh, I was doing these interviews on the phone with these guys and, and, you know, they were telling me some like really, because once you start asking questions about this stuff, as we've just discovered, it, it can, it can lead to some quite deep places quite quickly. Um, mm. And these guys were telling me these things and like, I found myself like crying listening to them. And um, like, the cyclist, especially the guy called Oscar was, um, you know, some of the stuff he was telling me was, um, you know, unbelievable. And he'd had, you know, um, suicidal thoughts and you know got to a really really dark place um, and he was in a better place then thankfully um, but just doing that article and then I wrote an introduction to the article and I found myself kind of you know looking at my own history kind of doing what we've just done now and saying well where did this start why did I get into this you know Brad Pitt mm -hmm. Fight Club okay but actually did it was it actually deeper than that you know did it go back even further and um, that just really kind of switched me on to this whole idea and then I around the same time I found that book the Adonis complex um which I think was something that just served up to me by you know the algorithm on um, Amazon or something like that and I, just, I saw it and I thought oh wow why have I never heard of this book before it looks like something that you know I'd be interested in bought it mm. and read it and that really just kind of opened my eyes um to a lot of things because you know it was published in 2000 so a long time ago before social media but it just really seemed to almost um seems so prescient you know especially you know in the kind of the moment that we're in now with social media being so kind of dominant um and it especially opened my eyes to um steroid abuse and, and sort of how prevalent that is and also how 
it's kind of hiding in plain sight in a lot of places and you know mm. I, I read it and i thought wow like i've almost definitely interviewed people over the years who've been using some kind of performance enhancing image enhancing drugs and i've not realized and i've sat there saying you know tell me how did you get in such great shape and you know you're so disciplined and you work so hard and your diet and this and that which is not to say they weren't disciplined or they didn't work hard you know they, mm. they probably did do that as well um but that's part of the sort of uh, it, it, you know there's an element of this that that is not truthful that's being mm. kind of concealed from people and um and that i think it's it's kind of contributing to this sort of inflation you know of, of physiques literally and, and, and you know, figuratively where they're just getting bigger and leaner and bigger and leaner and bigger and leaner and um you know for a lot of people it's not attainable um mm. so you know unless they also resort to those drugs um so that's I went down a real steroids rabbit hole for a while um, and everything was, was steroids and I was pitching lots of steroids features. Um, but I've kind of, I've, I've sort of stepped away from that a little bit now, not completely, but um, yeah, I'm, I'm just really interested in the sort of um, cultural kind of um, history of this stuff. So that's actually what I want to do next is hopefully write a book about the cultural history of, of the male kind of physique and, and really sort of how we got to this point. Cause I, I find that, fascinating you know um because it hasn't always been this way obviously so it's like how you know what are the forces that kind of combined to get us this point of which of which mental, mental health is one mm. what's your this is a very open-ended question but i'm interested in how you answer it what is your opinion on steroids wow um yeah um i mean i don't think it's something that anybody should really do mainly from a health perspective um it's not something i would ever do myself but then i don't really take a lot of drugs um i'm quite i've never even smoked a cigarette so you know i'm not necessarily representative from that point of view um i think for me it's it, it's it's more like why like why do you feel that you need to do this uh, why do you feel that like you want to do this like if you're a professional athlete or or a physique model or you know, somebody whose job depends on their physique, I can understand you'd almost be stupid not to because mm. the, the benefits are so great. Obviously the risks are great as well, mm. but you know, if it's literally your life, I, I could understand it. But I think for me, what, what I struggle with is like, why does the average guy in the street feel like he needs to do this? Mm. Um, and, and I just, I feel like, they don't need to, but they feel like they have to. And, and uh, that's something that I really want to try and change because to me, mm. I don't think it's worth it. I mean, there are these, you know, there are various studies which show that like people would, I think there was one in the Adonis complex where they said, you know, if you could like have the body you wanted, you know, how many years of your life would you be willing to give up? Yeah. <laughs> and people were like five years. Yeah, no problem. And then there's another one with Olympic athletes where it's like, you know, if you could win a gold medal, but you'd be dead in 10 years or something, would you do it? And like quite a large percentage of them said yes. And, mm. you know, on the one hand, you know, some people might find something to admire in that, um, that kind of dedication and maybe there is, but to me, I, I just don't think it's, it's worth it. And I think, I think why I also struggle with as well is the unfairness of, of the people who, who do it, but then pretend that they don't. Yeah. I think, I think, you know, if you're going to do it, if you're a professional athlete or a cover model or whatever, you're going to do it, at least be honest about it and tell mm. people, because if you're not honest and I understand, again, I understand why they don't tell people there are consequences, you know, to their careers and, and livelihoods. But the problem with the current situation is that, you know, 
people who are doing it but then say that they don't do it and insist that they're natural and insist that this is all just hard work and dedication and mm. you know good dieting and good genes um it's making it really really difficult for everybody else because they're looking at that and thinking well if they can do that you know why can't i do that or you mm. know even more sort of um you know negatively what's wrong with me like if, mm. if they look like that you know why don't i look like that um and i think that that pressure is is really contributing to the the, the pressure on on men and boys mm. to change how they look and it's it's really warping our sense of what is natural and normal and you can see this in a lot of other things you know you can see that you know you watch tv now and you look at everybody's teeth like you know <laughs> mm. sounds weird but um you know sort of cosmetic dentistry has become so sort of widespread that you know everybody yeah. on tv has got these these perfect white teeth and obviously that isn't how most people's teeth looked or you know you, mm. you see it with you know the kind of um you know other forms of sort of cosmetic surgery you know where they we're in this real sort of like um there's this sort of slippage now where you know what is what is abnormal is becoming normal and, and what is normal is becoming abnormal and it's just it's it's this sort of um you know as more and more people do it the pressure on everybody else to do it and not get left behind just becomes greater and I, mm. I it scares me to think about where that you know trend is going to go in five or ten years you know i i haven't got um sons i've got two daughters um but you know i worry about the pressures that are going to be on them to change their physiques and their faces you know when they grow up and if i had sons i'd be worried about you know the pressure on them to to change their bodies when they get to a certain age but again I, and again i think that's something that people aren't aware of enough is you know i think parents you know most parents now you know if they've got daughters you know they'll they'll be kind of sensitive around you know talking about body issues sensitive about how they talk about food maybe you know if their daughter comes in one day and doesn't want to eat certain foods or wants to eat less food yeah that will set off a red flag in their head mm. hopefully um but i think you know for a lot of parents if their teenage son comes home one day and he's got some protein powder and you know he's starting to hit the gym that won't necessarily set off a red flag mm. and and it shouldn't always but but sometimes it should very much so and um I think as well, especially that's such a sensitive age when you're you're really looking for an identity, you're looking for a philosophy almost, you know, yeah. how to live your life, you know, an answer to the questions of, you know, what should I, you know, what should I do? How should I live? Um, and, and bodybuilding really, you know, fills in a lot of those blanks, fills that void. Um, but if you're not careful and it can, you know, it can, fill up everything and push everything else out mm. yeah it's, it's interesting about the um like young boys i know there's a the studies in america um a lot of them by jason legata that i mentioned earlier mm. um and I, i'm pretty sure i i'm, I'm definitely going to butcher this this percentage <laughs> i think it's, it's it's like 60 or 80 percent of young boys have done some form of diet to change the way their body looks in america um, wow. which is either of those figures is ridiculous. I remember being like, I feel like it's, it was the 80, um, but that almost seems ridiculous to me. But I, I remember being shocked. Like I, 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 like for someone who's, who's aware of the problem, I, even I was shocked by the statistic. It was so high. Mm. Um, so it is happening. Um, mm. And I think, I think part of the reason it's happening more so is because it's not 
understood like there is no barrier in place to to boys taking on these these thoughts and behaviors because they're just just not considered that that would be a problem no i mean you know with weight loss you know obviously you know losing weight is you know something that that is often you know beneficial and, and you know there's lots of people who could stand to lose a little bit of weight and it would it would be better from them from a health perspective and they maybe would also feel better but we also understand as well you know as a society that that weight loss is something that's kind of freighted emotionally and and there's a lot of pressure on people to lose weight there's a lot of baggage that comes with it and there's you know and there's a point at which weight loss becomes unhealthy but i i don't feel like and and you know and i think the same is true of muscle you know building muscle is you know for a lot of people they could stand to benefit from building some more muscle you know metabolically you know as they age holding on to more of that muscle you know improve their quality of life improve their confidence but also at the same time you know there's a huge kind of cultural sort of baggage that comes with that and there's pressure on people to build muscle you know more muscle than they need more muscle than is natural but i don't think that that side of the equation is is as well known currently you know, yeah. people don't think of we th- we we associate muscle with health instinctively we we don't think of it as something that can be unhealthy um uh, you know maybe maybe with the sort of like really extreme you know bodybuilders physiques you know people would probably probably associate that but certainly with more of your kind of like you know hollywood actor cover model physique we, we mm-hmm. don't necessarily think of that as something that can be unhealthy but you know i think it can very much be unhealthy for all sorts mm-hmm. of reasons physically and psychologically yeah and i i couldn't agree more um and i'm a little bit conscious of time so i'm gonna move us on because i really want to touch on this as well um you're not only a, a writer for men's health you've also been a, a cover model um, for, <laughs> for men's health and um, you did a body transformation challenge am i right yeah um yeah. i guess my first question is tell us about the 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 process like how did you kind of how were you told about it and how what what happened during it um and then my second question is how have your if if at all has your feeling towards it changed since you've learned about body dysmorphia and muscle and things like that Huh. Uh, well, so I actually did two body transformations of men's health, but the first one was really bad, and I don't like to talk about it. Um, <laughs> okay. It was like a six, it was like a six-week bulk up um, where I had to try and put on as much weight as possible in six weeks, uh, which sounded like a good idea. But as most uh, kind of disciples of the of body transformation kind of know, it, what makes you look good in photographs is definition. Um, you know, low body fat is what really shows up muscles. So I just looked puffy. <laughs> yeah. Like I put on put on some weight, but I just looked really puffy. And then the photos themselves were super cringe. So I really need to get Google to remove those from the internet if I, at some point. Um, the second one I did was after I'd been there a couple of years, and uh, I did it um, at the same time as two other guys uh, from Men's Health, which was. Um, was good because we were all sort of in competition and, and kind of driving each other on. Um, so it was good from the point of view of getting the best results. It probably, again, wasn't necessarily like the healthiest thing for us to all be like, you know, we, we you know, we'd, we'd all be, co- we'd come in from our training sessions and like the others would be sat at their computer and we'd be like looking up and we'd be like, you know, having a look and seeing like, oh, you know, can you see some veins in the arms, you know? Mm. And we then be like, oh, what are you, what were you doing? What are you up to? And then, and, you know, 
we'd be eating our food and our desks and, and popping our supplements and pills and whatever and we'd all be kind of we became incredibly um yeah you know just obsessed with what the others were doing all the time mm. um and about what we were eating because we weren't we, you know we had nothing else to do really apart from train and eat and work um but it was um like i enjoyed I enjoyed the working out. It was incredibly satisfying. And this is the thing with bodybuilding, right? It's, it's this perfect feedback loop. So, you know, training hard with a, with a personal trainer, which is, you know, I don't normally get to work with a personal trainer, a guy called Tim Walker, um, who runs a gym called Evolve in London. Uh, you know, I loved working out with him and he really pushed me hard, pushed me much harder than I'd ever been pushed. You know, I, I realized how much I could, more I could push myself. Mm. Um, and again, I'm conscious now of saying this in this environment because I don't want that to be triggering for people. Um, but, but you know, there's a satisfaction, isn't there, to, to you know, hard doing hard training and seeing the, the numbers on the, the weights move up, seeing the numbers on the scales go in the direction you want to. Um, you know, within the context of the, the challenge, that, would, that was the goal. But I remember feeling a lot of stress around, like, trying to do everything perfectly because you've got this 10 week sort of window and uh, it, the challenge was originally supposed to start earlier but it got pushed back so it clashed with a, a family holiday uh, to new york for my sister-in-law's birthday so i had so i went to new york um but while they were all my family were all off doing the the sightseeing stuff i was in the gym <laughs> mm. which were, again at the time i wasn't necessarily that unhappy about because you know i got a lot of um, a lot of me time but um you know again looking back it's probably not the healthiest uh my wife always likes to tell people about how we were um we were engaged to get married at that point we were planning our wedding and we um went to the venue where we were going to get married and um they they gave us the the prosecco to sample to see if we were happy with it and like i looked at the glass and i was like you know i'm not going to drink this and then my mm. wife looked at me like you're going to drink it <laughs> so i had a sip of it but i felt really you know i just felt really kind of compromised about that like i need mm. to do everything and even now you know looking back at it i'm quite pleased with the, with the results i got but there's part of me that's like you know I'd, I'd love to have a time machine and go back and, and do it over again because i do it perfectly you know i, I didn't mm. do everything perfectly and i feel like i could have got a better result um so again that's not it's not the healthiest necessarily yeah um, i just I, I just it's interesting to me that because it kind of it it kind of aligns with something in my life as well that you have, you know, maybe what I would describe as some kind of shame around this first one mm. because of the fact that you you said you looked, I can't remember the word you puffy, puffy I think yeah. the word you used. Um, and then there's, I, I guess I get the sense of um, like pride in this second one um, where, you know, you would, you pushed yourself further than you ever been pushed, realized you could push further. Um, you know, you, you refuse to, or you semi-refuse to drink some champagne for your wedding and, and things. And there's, there's pride around these, these things happening. Um, and that kind of speaks to this whole, like, you know, exercising more, making sacrifices towards having a physique that doesn't normally last. Like, I don't, I don't know about you, but for me, when I did my, I did, for me, it was the, the opposite was I did a boxing fight once. And before we did the boxing match, we took shirtless pictures for the like the social media. And I was puffy. Um, and I, I it's still on my Facebook, like my tag in my tagged photos. And I'm so like, I still feel shame towards it, even though I know now that you know it, it doesn't matter and it's new, it's it doesn't make me a better person having abs and not having abs. Um 
but I still have that sense of shame towards it. And then when I did my, my, the show I did, I did the fashion, one of the fashion shows at Durham um, and I did the underwear walk and I looked, you know, I was really lean and I shredded down and I, you know, I did cardio every day. You know, I don't want to give numbers out and stuff, you know, I did a lot of cardio and did a lot of like weights and looking after like, you know, really being adherent to my diet and because you know during that build and i i'm at this a part of me that's proud about the fact that i achieved that physique but what i did in order to achieve that physique was i didn't go to any things with my friends i i stopped seeing people you know i i just all i did was go to the gym and all i did was look at food and i just didn't do anything else i, I even didn't go stop going to lectures and stuff because i didn't have enough energy you know i just wasn't doing anything but i still have that sense of pride because that's what's ingrained into me. And I, I don't know, I know I don't want to put words into your mouth, but I'm almost sensing like that, that parallel with my story, with your story there. This like the, I, I don't know. What, what do you think about that as I'm saying it? Yeah. I mean, you know, I'd be lying if I said I, I didn't take some pride from it. And I, I was especially proud because it was kind of a competition between us three. So the, the, um, we were producing like a workout booklet that was going to get sit on the front of the magazine. It was in like a poly bag on the shelf. Um, so I didn't get onto the actual cover of the magazine, which is again, is a sort of a, a source of regret. Uh, I was on a booklet attached to the front of the magazine. So there was like Hugh Jackman was on the cover. And then I was like just underneath with the three, I mean, three say, of us. Saying that you're the attachment to Hugh Jackman was, is pretty, still pretty cool. <laughs> I mean, it's not bad, but there's, but so there was a competition within the three of us to get like the, the pride of place, like the, the, to be in the middle. So, and I was ju judged to have done better than the other two guys. So I, I, I kind of won that pride of place and we were all stood around in the office and there was like a little meeting, uh, you know, production meeting. And then like the editor said, Oh, you know, we think Jamie got the best results. So, you know, and everybody clapped and that was great. And I felt good about myself, but I think, and this is something that, you know, when you speak to a lot of people who've kind of been down a bodybuilding path, you get you achieve good results and you feel good about that but then you kind of you create this benchmark for yourself that then you're going to kind of struggle to get back to because you know that's not your natural state to kind of be there yeah um you know you've hit this peak and you know, kind of the only way from there is down mm. but also like you don't really get any sense of satisfaction or i i say you i didn't get that much sense of satisfaction ultimately because you just always think I could have done better. I could have done more. Like when I look at the back of those pictures of myself now, I just see, I see my chest. I see my small chest. I really struggled mm. to build my chest. I found it hard to build my pecs. So my, my chest is, to me is really flat. You know, whereas I look at my colleague, Mark, he had amazing, like big full pecs, mm. you know, and, and I remember on the day of the shoot, just feeling like feeling small, you know, feeling, because by that point as well, we'd, um, you know, done all the, the tricks that you do of like, you know, you, you dehydrate, you know, the day before the shoot, you don't drink much water or yeah. so, you know, your, your, your skin goes really um, tight over your muscles. I, you know, I'm saying this, this is like a, a thing to kind of try and tell people, explain to people the realities of these photos. I'm not yeah. saying this is something that people should do. You shouldn't do it. It's really unhealthy. Obviously we didn't, we didn't take it to the extreme of like competing bodybuilders, you know, who, who yeah. dehydrate themselves to the point of really serious ill health. But, you know, we, we cut down massively the amount of water we drank like the day before you know, we cut, I cut down on carbs like the week, the whole of the week before, I think as well, which again was all to do with like weight, uh, water retention. Mm -hmm. But I just felt like this, you know, the whole time I'd been like building and getting bigger and stronger and bigger and stronger. Then like, it was like somebody like pulled, you know, popped a pin in the balloon almost like the, the mm -hmm. week before. And I just felt like, I just feel myself like deflate. Um, 
so yeah on the day of the shoot I remember just feeling like oh my god like Mark's so much bigger than me like even Dave's done really well um you know I look small but then obviously on the photos you look like a hero because it's all about the definition um mm. and, you, and you haven't got anybody kind of next to you as well so there's no sense of like um perspective which is I think another thing that people don't kind of realize when they see all these pictures of of, of models and actors and, and all the rest of them you know that they are often not like huge people you know I've met a lot of them in real life they're not necessarily like huge people mm. they just look huge because they're, they're you know they're shot from a certain angle and there's nothing around them and um so yeah but when you know when I look at those pictures now I just kind of feel like you know I, I don't really feel that much pride I sort of feel like yeah, I could have done better okay um, then I think that's part of my mindset that's mm. kind of the I call it like the editing mind like I'm constantly you know when I'm writing something I'm constantly reading it as I'm writing and thinking like could that be better I'm tweaking it I'm refining it I'm constantly kind of critiquing it and again I think it's that sort of double-edged sword of like you know I'm constantly thinking could I could I have done better could that be better mm. um so you know maybe that's more about me than, <laughs> than the transformation I, I, process. Yeah, and I I do like it's a it's a weird one because um I'm aware that I just kind of raised the idea of the kind of being issues with the whole like you know cutting down and stuff. But I do also agree that there is something you can take pride into the fact that you know you put a lot of effort into something and and you got a, a the result that you were you were after. And I mm. I do understand this pride in that, but I'm also conscious of the idea that yeah I think everywhere that's promoted as a solely only good thing. Mm. Um, and we have to be aware, you know, I, I, at least for me, when I was first getting into fitness, I just saw so much of like shredding down, bulking mm. up are only mm. good things. And therefore I've got obsessed with it. And I, mm. um, you know, I like to at least highlight from my perspective that it wasn't good for me because, you know, I would have enjoyed those six months so much more, um, you know, just having fun, especially, you know, the, especially the, the last like two or three months when I was really like doing it seriously, I would have enjoyed it so much more if I just relaxed and I wouldn't have cared that much about my body, not looking as lean or whatever um, in the long run. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a difficult. And, and also like you said, there's that, that whole thing of like, you'll never be that you'll, you've set this benchmark that it's almost impossible to meet now because you know, you've got life and you can't starve yourself and, you know, do all that exercise and, and you know, without, you know, your family and everyone falling out with you and, and things it's, it's really, yeah, it's a, it's a difficult thing to, to walk yourself down. Um, yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, we did those transformations, you know, it, you know, with the best sort of um, intentions as it, you know, being kind of something that would hopefully inspire people to show people kind of like or how much, you know, you, how much you can do in just 10 weeks, you know, and, and we did really do it and we didn't cheat and we didn't take steroids or, you know, use Photoshop or anything like that. You know, we really did it. So, you know, that is true, but at the same time, I wouldn't, and we actually did a follow-up article years later about the kind of the, the reality of doing a body transformation because, you know, it's not a way that you'd want to live, you know, certainly for, no longer than 10 weeks but you know even necessarily for those 10 weeks you could get similar results probably you know over a much longer period of time with much less of the sort of deprivation um Mm. and i also think back to like you know the reason one of the reasons i got into sort of doing this bodybuilding stuff in the first place which was that um you know i wanted to to be more attractive to you know find a partner and again, the sort of the irony of it is that if you get too far into this stuff, you become a very, very unpleasant person to be around and to live with. Um, yeah. You know, you do, you're not, 
you're not going to make yourself into a good partner, a good supportive partner. Um, mm. And even like when my wife and I first got together, she found some of my um, dietary habits very strange and kind of helped me to, um, yeah, sort of wean myself off things like, you know, just eating like a can of tuna fish with pesto and sweet corn and mixed in for dinner and thinking like, I, you know, in my head, I was like, well, that's, you know, good amount of protein. You know, I've got some fats in there. I've got some, you know, I, I very much kind of saw food as fuel. And um, again, you know, now as well, having kids, like obviously I tried to be, not be weird around food around them. Um, and that's probably yeah. the biggest thing that stops me from, um, yeah, trying to pursue muscularity goals mm. now with any sort of degree of um any real degree of uh sort of um fervor that and just yeah sheer lack of time <laughs> mm. yeah because yeah to be honest the, the reality is that even though i spend all this time researching about you know the kind of negative effects of muscularity and, and sort of seeing behind the the curtain i still i still feel that that pull you know i still feel that like impulse of like i need to get bigger you know i've joined this gym now which is a, a, a performance gym um it's kind of crossfit style training there are no mirrors in the gym um so you know there's very much not an emphasis on on muscularity but i still mm. you know I, my eye is kind of drawn to the guys in the gym who are bigger and stronger than me and i just think i feel that like pull of you know and i tell myself you know i'm not in competition with them you know mm. I, I am where i'm at and i need just need to get better from where i am now but there's still that part of me that's like you know you're lesser than those guys you need to kind of get up to that that level um and, that, yeah. and i think that's such so it's such a real experience for so many men and uh, again mm. i don't think i don't think we're i think it's almost laughed at like it's just like oh what you you're like um you're like a, a man who's insecure is like a funny thing it's like oh he's he's insecure his, his masculinity is at, at fault or something like it just it, i don't know it just doesn't seem um, but one thing I wanted to touch on, because I, again, I'm conscious of time and I, I wanted to get onto the devil's advocate, because I think that's a lot of people who listen seems to be their favorite question. So I definitely <laughs> want to get to that. Um, but I, I just thought of this um, as I've been listening and I've read a, um, one of her books to Brené Brown recently. Oh, yeah. I don't know if you, you, mm. you're familiar with her. Um, mm. And she talks a lot about shame and stuff. And she re- one of the um, things I listened to her recently was an interview she did with Russell Brand on Russell Brand's podcast, which I, oh, yeah. I love his podcast. Um, and she said that if you want to, she was talking about if you want to control people or if you want to take over the world, there's two things you have to do. There's two steps. The first step is exacerbate all of their vulnerabilities and worries. And then the second is give them someone who's the problem, like give them an enemy around mm. those worries and problems. And I, I sometimes uh, I'm, I'm caught, you know, as someone who, who is constantly trying to second guess my own opinions and, and question things and question what maybe I'm fed through research and through whatever that might be hidden underneath it. Um, I think, media in some regard have been that enemy i think we've we've been shown the the vulnerabilities and the worries and the stress around disordered eating and like i said i have lived experience with that so i'm in no way belittling how horrible that is i know it is and i think you know, we're told how horrible they are and then we're fed the media as the enemy for us to take down <laughs> and i don't I, I don't think it's that it's like that seemed it's far too convenient isn't it that it's just this big bad evil person um that is the media i don't think it is i think there's so many things involved i think there are things that can be that in the media that can be difficult um but 
I think if you shut down the media, it would, they would still be there. Um, yeah. So, yeah. Sorry. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, I, I read a good description of it once, which is like, you know, the mirror, the media is kind of like a mirror that just sort of reflects culture's values back at it. And the media wouldn't be able to sort of do that to us if we weren't already, um, it wouldn't be able to kind of give us those values if we weren't already sort of predisposed towards them in some way. And, you know, I think about like, a lot of what I've been reading it recently is kind of pointing towards, you know, consumerism and the role of consumerism. And I, th I think people don't necessarily, you know, put two and two together in terms of how, just how much money there is to be made in terms of exploiting men's insecurities about their bodies. You know, a lot of the, the kind of advertising using the, the naked kind of male torso really kicked in in the kind of eighties, nineties, which is when you had this sort of metrosexual movement, which is basically, you know, it, it was grooming, beauty products manufacturers realizing that they're hey there's like 50 percent of the population here that we're not really selling to if we can get men to buy our products then you know boom yeah and so you had this whole kind of movement towards male grooming and you know all these magazine articles about you know moisturizers and things like that um so i think that's a big part of it but it goes even deeper than that towards you know kind of our sort of um you know this kind of neoliberal world that we live in now where it's like it's all about kind of individual responsibility and you know it, it, it's your job to kind of get on in life and you know you get what you work for and, and if you don't get on in life you know it's because you haven't worked for things and you know yes hard work is important and, and yes you probably won't get very far without some hard work but you know we understand now in other areas of life that privilege plays an enormous part in that that you know there's the, the playing field is not a level you know, some people start from a position of advantage versus others. Mm. Some people have, you know, other advantages like, you know, drugs to, to help them along or, or even, you know, genetics. Again, you know, to, going back to that, it's it's you, it's not a level playing field. So to, to kind of reduce it to that simple sort of um, idea of, you know, it's about how hard you work. It, it doesn't really tell the whole story. Um, mm. But at the same time, you know, these these values you know and when people do succeed they want to believe that it's just because of how hard they've worked you know whether, whether that's in business or in, in you know transforming their body they want to believe or, you know this is all down to my hard work and it's not to say that they haven't worked hard but perhaps they had advantages that other people don't have you know if two people do the same workout program and follow the same diet they're not going to get the same results so mm. how can we then say that you know we, we lord these people who've, who've these people who've you know reached these high levels you know we they're held up as like examples of what we could all do. And unfortunately, you know, I, I, this is not to be defeatist. And, you know, I believe there's a lot of things that we can do to, you know, improve our bodies, change our bodies. But ultimately, you know, I, I'm not going to turn into Dwayne The Rock Johnson tomorrow, you know, even if I follow his workout plan to the absolute letter and follow his mm. diet to the absolute letter, that's just not going to happen. But I feel like that sort of, that reality is, is that message is kind of, is obscured mm. yeah i couldn't i couldn't agree more um so jamie <laughs> it is time for the devil's advocate it's the devil's advocate <laughs> so in case you don't know in, in case other people um listening haven't um listened to any of the recent podcasts where we've we've done this section the devil's advocate is I brought in because 
usually similar to this podcast, uh, I bring people on who I agree with and therefore the podcast is me kind of agreeing with them through the whole podcast. So I wanted to bring in one section of the podcast where I come up with a question that disagrees or kind of has that disagreeing tone to it. Um, So today's devil's advocate question is, don't you think teaching people about the disordered muscle related behaviors will make it more likely for people to adopt them? Oof, yes, uh, that is a good question. Uh, and I, I definitely worry about it in terms of um, steroids and kind of drugs, especially because unfortunately the, the reality is the benefits in terms of your physique and your, your aesthetic are, you know, are massive and what you can achieve with them versus what you can't, you know, there's, there's really no comparison, but I still come down on the side of the fence that to not tell people about them would cause more harm. I think, you know, ultimately you can't sort of tell people what to do. And I can't sit here and say, you should never take steroids. All I can really do is give people as much information, as much data as possible where they can really make an informed decision. And, and I want to also make people think about like, why do you feel that you want to take steroids? Like, you know, what do you think is going to happen if you take them? What do you think is going to happen in your life? That if you achieve these these lofty body goals that you set yourself, you know how do you think your life is going to improve, and is, is that a realistic belief? Um, so I think ultimately that's going to be. I, I just feel like that's the way forward, and also I think as well the more that we kind of tell people about these things, and the more that can be done in terms of like harm reduction, because ultimately there are some people who are going to do it no matter what you tell them. Um, but it's just about trying to make sure that they can do it in a, in a sort of safe and, and res- responsible and in inverted commas away, away as possible. Um, so, yes, I, I do sort of understand the sentiment of that question, but I think I think talking is about it is better than not talking about it, as with lots of things in life. Yeah, and I, I agree completely. Um, I think uh, the the risk of someone hearing what you're or like seeing what you've written or hearing what you're saying and, and adopting it um, is a lot, a lot less than someone not seeing what you're hearing and not, or, and sorry, not seeing what you've written or hearing what you've said and then therefore falling into it. I think people are falling into it by themselves and therefore talking about it is kind of our only option. Like we're, we're not talking about it and it's happening. So surely the best thing, the only option is to talk about it. Um, yeah. And it just, it, it, yeah, I think it, it makes sense. I think back to as well, when I, you know, I, I want to kind of put the sort of information out there that I wish I had found when I was a 16 year old boy, and, you know, and, and back then, you know, my, my choices for finding information were fairly limited, you know, it was what I could get off the shelf at WH Smith. So, you know, thankfully, there's a sort of quality control, a certain amount of quality control there. But, you know, obviously now, you know, people can go online and find all kinds of stuff um, very easily and very quickly. And I, I just think as much the more good quality information and advice I can put out there, the better. Yeah, amazing. Thank you, Jamie. Um, so at the end of every podcast, as I know you've listened to a few, I'm sure you'll be aware, <laughs> there are a final three questions and um, i asked to everyone so the first question is well it's not really a question those statements i need to i need to rename these the final three i don't really know what to call them but it's the final three um name a person real or fictional who inspires you oh you know i really struggled with this one 
because I want to think of a, a like a good impressive answer where you'd be like wow yeah what you know what an amazing answer um but the, the like, like Socrates or something <laughs> yeah um I don't know or some some like you know amazing journalist or something uh but the name that just kept coming up and over and over again in my head and I'm almost embarrassed no I am embarrassed to say this is James Bond James Bond and that, like that's and I don't want people to judge me more than they already have for saying that but I've just been obsessed with James Bond for a long time and um the books more than the films I got into reading the books when I was like uh, I think in between sort of school and uni and then in the, the gaps at university but like for me James Bond it's not because of like the womanizing or you know the, the clothes or anything like that it's it's this fantasy of like a capable man like who who is put into any situation and knows what to do mm. and, and never kind of really sits there going well should i do this or should i do that or yeah well yeah he's like he's decisive and you know he makes decisions and he follows through and i read something recently that um Kingsley Amis, the author, wrote about James Bond, where he said that part of the fantasy of James Bond, part of his appeal is his sort of trainability. It's this mm. idea that, like, actually, we could all be James Bond if we, you know, just did, you know, how many press-ups he does a day in the back in, in the Ian Fleming novels. And um, I think that's definitely part of it. I also recently was, was reading somebody talking about how, um, in the books especially, Bond has this, like, awkward father relationship with M, where he, like, sort of desperately wants to please M, but mm. also... Um, is is kind of like slightly resentful of his authority so that's probably part of it too but like certainly in like my um early career journalistic career at like gq where there was more of an element of like fashion and stuff and um you know i, I very much had this sense of like i could learn how to be a proper man like you know, if i just mastered all these skills and like you know put all this stuff together there's almost like this template of, of being a perfect man and i could mm. you know i could if I, if I learned everything and did everything right, then I could, I could kind of ascend to this, this sort of level. Um, so, yeah, I think that's part of it too. Um, but also as well, just like, it's just the pure escapism as well, you know, mm. just the, you know, at points in my life when I've been in places where maybe, you know, things haven't been, it, it, at the start of the pandemic, actually, that's another really good example. I got very heavily into um, reading all the continuation novels. So like Ian Fleming wrote like 13 books and then died, obviously, but there's a whole like load and Anthony Horowitz actually has got a new continuation novel coming out next year, uh, this year actually. Um, so there's a whole there's a whole like wealth of extra Bond books that you can read. And I, I got into this habit of like reading them um, over the pandemic, and they just wrote real comfort. They're very um, formulaic as well, so you know it's kind of like you, you know sort of what to expect, and um, yeah, I think that's part of it too. Mm, amazing. Well, I mean, I I almost see. I think James Bond is. Um, maybe not quite, but is at least very, very close to like the, the idea of like the, the male archetype He's the, you know, the, the whole point is that he is supposed to be the perfect man, isn't he? That's kind of his thing. So, you know, asking the question of someone who inspires you, I feel like James Bond is a, is an almost like exactly correct answer, isn't it? You know, the whole point of <laughs> James Bond is to be inspiration. So I think it's a good yeah, answer. But I, I feel like I should, I should have something more sort of noble or highbrow. Um, yeah, no, I but, like it. Uh, I like it. James Bond. I also partly, um, I, yeah, I got really obsessed with 
reading the Bond continuation novels last year, but also because I realized then as well that I could actually write about Bond. So it was sort of like I could, you know, turn it into, so I wrote a, quite a few um, big articles about Bond last year. I wrote one about the history of James Bond's body, like where um, I kind of charted the evolution. Mm. I spoke to his personal trainer, Simon Waterson, um, Daniel Craig's personal trainer, who, and he also trained Pierce Brosnan as well. And that was, again, was super interesting, kind of just looking at, you know, how things have changed and the sort of history of action films and stuff. Um, mm. But then I sort of burnt myself out a little bit. Um, I wrote a massive um, like ranking of all of the Bond films and the books all together, like to be like the kind of ultimate ranking. And it was about hmm. 6,000 words. And by the end of it, I was just like, I can't watch. I can't watch or read any more Bond. So I'm on a little bit of a Bond break right now, but I'll, de- I'll definitely go back. Amazing. Um, the second question. Name a phase of your life that you didn't like at the time, but looking back, you know that positives came from it. <laughs> uh, again, there's so many, so many like uh, candidates for this one, but I think probably that early phase when I was trying to get into journalism and like, I remember that being a difficult time. I, like come out of uni and quite a few of my uni friends had gone into, you know, um, kind of training uh schemes courses you know you join these companies like kpmg and all the rest of it where you know deloitte's where you go on this like there's this ladder that you just go straight on so you come you come off the uni ladder and you go straight on to this other ladder where they became lawyers you know they joined law firms and had training uh you know a couple of years training with them or so many people just seemed to know what they were doing and where they were going and i was i felt like i was just kind of drifting and i didn't really know i was couch surfing on my friend's couch in london and you know they both got training contracts for one was a lawyer one was going to be an actuary so you know they kind of knew what they were doing with their lives and they had a flat in london and they were you know real people in the world and i was kind of still like the sort of arrested development phase and i was you know trying to make a success of this journalism thing but you know trying to get into it but not really sure if it was going to pan out or not and you'd meet a lot of people on the work experience sort of circuit who'd been doing it for months or years and, and not gotten anywhere so i was like is this going to go anywhere um so i guess yeah that period um wasn't a lot of fun um but yeah it was obviously where you know i kind of put in the the sort of groundwork i guess to to, to start my career but and also as well it was useful because i to be honest i'm skeptical of anybody who can say at age 18 or age 21 that they know what they want to do with the rest of their life <laughs> like how can you make that decision um, so it was actually a really useful opportunity to like get data for myself and say and try out this journalism thing and be like, do I actually like this? I remember at the time one of the other things I thought I wanted to do was book publishing, and I went and did some work experience at a book publishing house, and I just didn't like it as much as like doing the magazine thing. Like I didn't just didn't it didn't kind of gel with me. So that was actually really useful to be able to go, okay, I, I've tried that now because you know you've got no idea of what all these jobs and careers are going to be like really and most people don't you know you're just kind of looking at lists and you know i'm um, trying to stick a pin in them to say okay well yeah i want to be that for the rest of my life you know it's like how can you say that like you need to kind of um you know doing stuff like work experience it's an extended job interview you know for for you in terms of like showing what you can do but also it's a chance for you to interview the job and and, and say well you know do i actually like this do i like these people do i want to be here with these people you know can i see myself doing this uh, is the work actually fun or is it not what i thought it was going to be so i think it was it was a worthwhile experience ultimately and i and i'd recommend anybody else to sort of do the same if you're if you're unsure about what you want to do with your life as you yeah. should be <laughs> yeah no, yeah and 
Um, I, I often say that second question is my favorite of the three. And that's kind of one of the reasons why, because I think we get there's so many life lessons that come out of that. And I think that's such a key one. Um, I think we it's becoming more of the narrative now that people say, you know, you don't have to have your life sorted by a certain age or, or whatever. But it's just like, yeah, the more people I meet who are successful, the more I realize that that really is true. Um, and I really like, have you, have, do you ever watch Gary V? He's like a big yeah. businessy guy. And I yeah. love, I love like, you know, I was kind of skeptical of him at first because I thought he'd be this kind of cheesy Instagram person, but um, he, I love his perspective on it. And he even, he says, you know, like, even if you're like 30 and you, and you, and you like, you could people think when you're 30, you have to know what you're doing. Like, yeah. And he's, he says like, he was, he's like 40 something. And he says, I don't have a fucking clue what I was doing when I was 30. Like, you know, <laughs> like you, you literally, like, it doesn't matter. And like, he's mega successful. Like, there is no clock. Like 30 is still young. Like there's some weird idea of like, when you're 30, you have to be in the job that you want to be at and, and knowing exactly what you want to do, but it's, it's complete and utter bullshit. Now you can you can decide when you're 50 and you can still you know have a good time and you know, you can enjoy the process towards figuring out what it is you wanted to do. You're trying things out and it's so hard to to break that narrative in your head, but it really is true that you know, there is no you know guideline for exactly how you're supposed to do things. No, no, and I feel I think a lot of people, especially coming out of you know school or uni, they feel that pressure to just go straight into a job and start mm. working, start a career because you know they need to get on that ladder and it's like you can definitely spend you can spare a year or two years yeah. you know shop around mess around you know yeah. don't be in a rush you've got the whole rest of your life to work mm. you know if you've got that opportunity to go traveling or, or do something or you know take it because once you get on that sort of work kind of ladder grind you know those opportunities are few and far between mm. so and i think ultimately you'll make better choices if you take that little bit of time to to explore and try things out and, and you know kind of sample it for yourself you know I, I think you don't want to kind of get 20 years down the line and think oh you know I really wish I'd done that degree or I really wish I'd you know done some work experience or you know six months volunteering somewhere or yeah 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 couldn't agree more um and the final question is name a phrase to live by <laughs> uh we well, said we could swear right so um yeah yeah, one that I always kind of come back to is uh, one of my old managers actually told me this, which was like, there's never any need to be a dickhead. I love and, that. <laughs> yeah, I, I, it's something I think about a lot and actually comes back to that idea of feeling like, you know, I need to resolve situations by punching people in the face. But actually, the opposite is almost always better. And, you know, no matter how kind of angry you are, no matter how much someone's wronged you or, you know, um, it, it, being a dickhead, almost never makes things better and and it's just ultimately not necessary um mm. and especially for me as a freelancer you know kind of maintaining contacts and, and kind of good relationships with people like i try to make sure that i'm somebody who's good to work with you know mm. uh, fun to work with i don't want anybody to kind of work with me and then come away and think you know i didn't enjoy that or you know there's another good quote from um I think it was Angela Arendt who said, like, you know, people remember how, I don't know, it was somebody else, but it was, you know, the idea of, like, people don't remember what you say, but they remember how you made them feel, you know. Mm, I think this, yeah. is a, this is a slightly more extreme NSFW kind of version of that, you know. Don't yeah. be a dickhead to people. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's just, there's never really a need, and it, and it, and it doesn't make things better. Almost always makes things worse. Mm, yeah, I couldn't, I couldn't agree more. 
Um, Jamie, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. I hope you enjoyed it. I did very much. Thank you for having me. I'm, I'm honoured and, and flattered to, to be invited. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure. And yeah, I, I feel like it's been a really good discussion. And I'm, I, it's been a really nice um, one for me to to kind of get myself back into the podcasting world because it's been it's been really easy to do because you're a very uh, articulate speaker and it's a very easy job for me um people listening at home as always thank you so much for listening all the way through and i hope to see you at the next one bye thank you so much for listening to that episode here at Maya Minds, we're trying to raise awareness for all the things that we speak about in this podcast. So please, if you can, give it a share. Each and every one of you has the potential to help us with that. Also, if you want to check out MayaMinds.com, please do. You can see all our social media things on there. And we'd love to have you contributing more as a part of our community. Thank you.